you're listening to Hot Leaf Juice, the Teen Community Podcast. Hey listeners, thanks again for downloading another episode of Hot Leaf Juice. This time, I'll be talking with Glenn Bowers and Stacey Burrington. Glenn is the founder of Crimson Lotus Tea, which is an online pu'er shop, and Stacia is a Seattle area artist. Last year, Glenn commissioned a set of pu'er bricks that had Stacia contribute some art and work from her portfolios to uh, print on the wrappers. The result is the Space Girls series, which you can buy from the Crimson Lotus website. As far as I can tell, this is the first time I've seen outside art used for a pu'er wrapper uh, for the Western market. So I was really excited to spend time uh, with Glenn and Stacey to talk about this project, to talk about tea, and as it turns out, we had a lot of science fiction-related tangents, which was pretty cool. As always, our theme music is provided by Equity Slate with this track, Oolong Tea, which you can find a link to in the show notes. If you have any questions or suggestions for me, you can get a hold of me at barry at hotleafjuice.org. And if anyone is going to the Southwest Tea Festival in Vegas this coming weekend and you want to meet up, I'll be there, I'll be running around, and I'd love to just say hi to any listeners. That about wraps it up for now. Uh, here's the conversation I had with Glenn and Stacia. I hope you love it as much as I did. Have you guys uh, have you guys started brewing the uh, the? I guess I, I I guess it doesn't matter which paintings on it. I have Molly, uh, but it's all the Space Girls material. Yep, yep. We're, uh, we're we're brewing it up here. Awesome. Yeah, I just kind of had to drink my wash because I didn't have any place to put it. <laughs> we have it in a silver teapot. Yeah, we're, we're, we're brewing teapot. it in silver. Mm-hmm. Whoa. We're messing around. Yeah, well, we went big time. How long have you been? How long have you had a silver teapot? Um. So one of the one of the exciting things with last year is we actually got to meet some. Um, traditional silversmiths in Yunnan started working with them to have some stuff made for us and so um I still couldn't really uh, afford one but after we sold like enough of them then then my accountant slash wife was like okay I think we can get one for ourselves and I'm like awesome so um probably about 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 half a year six months it's it's interesting I let um I've let some bloggers borrow it and um do some side-by-side tastings and silver does some really interesting stuff it has this kind of a unique way of kind of um kind of clarifying the tea kind of like accentuating huh. the high points um it's a, it's very interesting that's i mean one of these days I, I i guess i'll be able to give that a shot um a silver teapot is probably not remotely in my budget right now <laughs> yeah it's, it's but if i ever ever get a chance to, to try one i'll definitely uh give it a shot so you do think it makes a big difference a, a noticeable difference at least yeah, even like the lay palette. I mean, it's 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 noticeable if you did it side by side. Um, I mean, clay does some really amazing things, but clay all, almost kind of um, kind of mellows and kind of mutes some flavors, almost like a like a light dusting of sandpaper on a rough surface. But uh, silver kind of just um, makes it a little bit more peaky, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. And you think that's a big? How would you compare it to, I guess, a, a, a regular ceramic? Uh... Something, um, something it's it's porcelain. It's it's brighter. Um, it just it 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 feels brighter. Um, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's kind of hard to describe. I don't understand exactly what's what's going on. Um, I do actually really like. I found I really love taking photographs of tea in silver teacups because it just it's so reflective that it just makes whatever you put in there just just vibrant and bright. Oh, that's cool. Have you? 
I guess I don't remember. I don't remember seeing anything like that on your um, on your Instagram page. Have you have you posted pictures like that? Uh, I have. Uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe not recently. Um, mm-hmm. Primarily because we, we we sold out of all of our silver cups, and I find that that people get a little upset if you post a bunch of pictures of stuff that you don't have to sell. <laughs> That's that's an interesting observation um, because you know on the one hand like your social media accounts are it's you like yeah. we know who it is behind the computer or on the other side of the phone especially if you're in in the the greater extended T community like uh, people know who you are on the other hand we also know that as a vendor like it exists as a marketing wing of your company right yeah. And reconciling that, sometimes people have, I guess, simultaneously competing expectations. Uh, does that happen often, where people are like, "Oh, I want to see, I want to buy that knife that you were posting about, but you just thought the knife was cool." It it happened. Uh, it, it happened a lot in the beginning, and it, it made me it made me um, be a little bit more careful about it. Um, on on the other side, like when we're in China, we we use it um, uh, kind of to our advantage. I let people know that basically anything that I take a picture of is is for sale. Even if I see something in the market and I haven't, I haven't bought it. If somebody really likes something, they're like, "Hey, in that one market picture, that fourth teapot from the left, I love it." And then I'll go, I'll go back to the shop and I'll, I'll work out a deal with that person, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get it. And so I, I want people to know that, like, they kind of through our Instagram have their, you know, fingers in in China. And if they see something they really like, then I'll try and find a way to. Uh, Oh wow, that's really cool. I'm not surprised at all to hear that that's uh, a true story, right? That somebody was like, "Hey, you know that really cool teapot on that last picture." Uh, I, I take it. Do you go? Do you do? Um, do you spend almost your entire sourcing trips in Yunnan, uh, or have you ever been to Fujian or anywhere else? Yeah, we spend it. We spend it ex- exclusively, exclusively in, in Yunnan. Um, like what, like once or twice. The first couple of years, we went to a couple of different places, but that was basically just just for fun it wasn't uh, it wasn't tea, tea sourcing um yunnan's so unique there's so many amazing things in yunnan every single thing that you that we would need is is in yunnan um or we can easily get access to it um mm-hmm. pretty easy online if um i mean a lot of there's a lot of tea shops and tea markets in, in, in Kunming and uh, most of them represent a lot of what you'd be able to find if you actually went to you know Shaman or Shanghai or Guangzhou or something like that. So um, I don't really know for us if there'd be a specific advantage to take all the, the time and effort and cost to a, another big city. Huh. So is I have heard some I guess competing different ideas about like whether Kunming is like a great place to buy tea or not. I've heard that Kunming is like capital of fakes and Kunming store tea is bad. And then I've also heard that Kunming is a great city with lots of tea and it's the where you want to go if you want to go to Yunnan. As somebody who's been there a lot, um, <laughs> could you clarify that? They're it, they're they're both they're both true. Um, and really, it comes down to if if you if you like what you're drinking. Um, and it's a good price. Does it does it does it matter if it's fake? And, and I mean, when, when I say when people say fake, I think I think they get a little uh, they get a little bit confused because tea can be a legitimate tea. It's not it's not actually a fake tea. It just may be not what they thought it was when they bought it. Um, yeah. If you're if you're going there and you're like, I want to buy like a tongue of the eighty eight Qingbing, and somebody there is going to sell it to you. And it probably won't be the ADHD you'll, you'll, you'll yeah. But if you're going there with like an open mind and, and, and you're trying to find a tea that you love, and if you've got a budget set for yourself, you can definitely find really awesome stuff. 
that's one of the things I really like about the Western perspective as both a tea buyer and as a tea consumer, where there, it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of... I'm sure there is some, but there's not as much bias regarding factory and region and year and storage that perhaps uh, a, a Chinese palate, a Chinese drinker might might bring to them when they try pu'er, especially if you're reaching out to people who never had pu'er at all and yeah. you're introducing them to the entire concept. Uh, you have this kind of blank slate where you can just buy nice, nice tasting tea, right? Yeah. And if people like it, they'll like it because it is good and you can set the tone i think perhaps for the conversation about poor yeah absolutely but... and that was that, long... that was one of the focuses that i i had when when i started crimson lotus tea as, as somebody who was a coffee drinker and on a, on, on a coffee journey looking for amazing coffee and not even realizing like that this tea existed that there was this thing called pu'er and coming to the conclusion that that's what i was actually looking for but i was on i was on the wrong road and once once i realized that like i i, I we we, we, we built our company around trying to find the people that, that were me, the people that have been looking for Pu'er their whole life, but have no, no idea that it exists. And these people may eventually become like high-level Pu'er connoisseurs that are looking for something really amazing, you know, like a, a, a vintage example of, you know, like a Shaguan or a Dahi or something very, very high-end and on the, on, on the collector scale. But realistically, most of our customers are looking for something that they enjoy drinking and they don't have to pay a lot for. So, Stacia, um, how long have you known Glenn? We were just trying to figure this out, and I think we met in 2010, give or take a year, so about seven years. It, it seems like yesterday, to be honest. Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. yeah. We, we met at a... Um, I used to work in Pioneer Square in Seattle, and Pioneer Square um, used to have a really... I mean, it still does. Um, Pioneer Square has an amazing uh, uh, gallery scene in Seattle. Um, they used to be a lot more focused on um, uh, accessibility of starting artists. They had some really cool artist lost spaces and stuff. And uh, every month, uh, the first Thursday of every month, they have this really amazing uh, art walk. All the galleries stay open late. And, and um, it's, it's just a really collaborative environment. Since I was working down there at the time, um, I would always get off early and just like walk around and just happen to stumble into Stasia at one of the uh, open market spaces. and. She had awesome stuff, and um, you know, kind of hit it off, chatted. Maybe I bought something. I can't remember. But then, like every single first Thursday for like two years, like no matter where she was, I would just run into her by accident. Like, oh, hey, like, like what are you, what are you doing here? And then, um, so I just started, you know, buying her stuff as gifts for friends, and um, and we we just kind of hit it off, and have been been friends ever since. Yep. That's really awesome. Um, and uh, how, how, how quickly, I guess, Stacia, like on a scale of one to one, one to tea nerd, like, like how, how are, how are, how much are you into tea? <laughs> um, I love tea. I am kind of embarrassed to admit, but I'm more of a coffee person still. I think it's the Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, but I, uh, have a, I have a tea cabinet at home. I have tea almost every day. I'm still learning about Pu'er, um, but I love tea. I love it awesome yeah and how does it feel to be the uh i guess the artist on one of the at least the first examples that i can find of an out of an a, a non i guess sort of a non-commissioned piece of art that was put on a, a a poor label facing a western audience which sounds very specific but it's actually pretty historic i am super proud it's not something that i knew that i wanted but now that it's here i'm like i'm super proud of what 
Glenn has made, and I get to put my little stamp on top of it. I think it's really <laughs> cool. Um, I, I'll admit, I was uh, had a little bit of a, a selfish motivation. I, I thoroughly fell in love with her her Cosmonauts series <laughs> when I saw it at the gallery, um, but uh, I just I had no money at that point in time and I couldn't pick any of them up and so the fact that I was able to to work some of her work into uh into my my tea um and I get to to see the the, the cakes every day uh pleases me greatly <laughs> well there there it's an awesome piece and it's a whole series right so there you picked four uh of the pieces but there are how many there's like 10 um I started out with this show and it was 50 so it was kind of like a Almost like a yearbook of uh, cosmonaut girls on the wall. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, I must have missed that there were 50 of them. Uh, that's pretty crazy. Okay, cool. Yeah, when she and I were kind of brainstorming about this last spring, or, yeah, last spring, I, um, um, I I basically went through the, the list and, and you know talked with uh, my wife, Lamu, about the ones that we liked the most, and she picked the ones that she liked, and I picked the ones that I liked, and we kind of came up with this... Uh, the, the the four that we picked it's a hard decision because I mean some of them are so awesome they're just they're, they're really very cool and creative it was super fun super fun series yeah yeah it, it's very interesting the, the entire art style behind it is really is really interesting and I'm not somebody who has a whole lot of vocabulary and formal training in art criticism so my ability to like articulate why I think this is a great piece of art might be a, a little bit um I guess a little bit understated, but I, I have this whole idea that like, you know, they seem to be like, on the one hand, like these are cute pictures in, in a, in a sense, but they're, I also kind of think they're really not. If you, if you described um, the subject matter to a blind person, a series of colorful female astronauts portraits, that just would not do justice to what's really being done because all of the subjects in the, in the painting are very, uh, have, a, have, a, have an attitude that doesn't seem like they as as I guess as characters are acting cute but like they just they're 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 subjects with with sort of a specific kind of attitude in a not in a in a in a, in a painting that happens to be cute um, thank you. how would you approach your aesthetic to that I, I I I wish I could do a better job justifying no, it but I think no, it's that's really cool very insightful um uh wow it's a good insight it, it's, um, and it's, a really it's a interesting question, question. Um, how would you explain it to a blind person? Um, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a kids' book illustrator. And okay. I really loved uh, kids' books and you know, all the beautiful illustrations growing up. So, but then I went to fine art school and started doing gallery shows with more serious work. And um, like always in the back of my head, I'm like, I want to do kids' books. And so I developed this style of drawing people with like a little round head, you know, and little eyes, uh, and. I guess it's kind of inspired by Japanese animation and it, like mm -hmm. by like because they have round heads and like cute pastel colors they end up being cute but that wasn't my motivation to start um I guess like I try to make little characters that are interesting and cute is kind of a byproduct well it's similar to like mm -hmm. your uh, uh kind of like your Yakuza Girl series oh yeah where I mean these these are actually like very like serious gangster girls but they're, they're they're drawn in a very a very cute way and so there's it's just an interesting kind of dichotomy of two things that are going on yeah, i like to have a little bit of a subversive or off feeling and i think the contrast between that and cuteness is what makes things interesting like yeah. contrast in anything is what makes things interesting 
The Japanese art reference, um, I think, is pretty spot on. Uh, it reminds me of, and maybe maybe you're familiar with this, I think it's now a dead artistic movement, but I think in the late 90s and through the 2000s, there was a, a style of art in Japan called super flat. Are you familiar with that yeah. term? Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that. I haven't been into super flat art in like five plus years, uh-huh. but like 10 years ago, I, I had like a whole, I went to the art museum and got a book about it. I thought it was just really crazy. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of that. It's not, it's not super extreme like some of the, some of the stuff I saw in those books, but yeah, it does remind me of that of that movement. I'm very flattered. Thanks. So yeah, um, it's really it's really awesome to see like uh, modern art on on poor labels, and of course, Crimson Lotus has had their own design label design prior to this. Um, Glenn, I guess who was in charge of that up until the Space Girls series? Um, it's it's me. It's all it's all me. I do I do all the all the design work uh, uh, myself. Um, it's it's pr- primarily a consequence of, of not really having any uh, budget to, <laughs> to speak of. Mm-hmm. Um, this was actually the first time when we actually got a chance to you know like pay somebody to make for us. And I'm, I'm really excited that I'm actually in that space. Um, we're finally in that space, but um, I mean, I um, uh, I studied studied art my whole life. I, I was uh, minored in fine arts in college, taking art classes for years, and so I mean, I, I have a, a grasp of um, uh, design, and I, I know how to make things that that I like. And um, you know, if, if other people like it too, that's 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 awesome. Um, so yeah, most of the stuff that, that I had done, we started off kind of doing more of a. a a very simplistic Asian aesthetic on our first cakes, like the first two years and stuff. And we had, you know, like stamps made and we hand stamped all of them. And then it was, it was, I early, remember those. Yeah. Earlier 2016 that I really kind of wanted to, uh, we, made, we, we found some really awesome, um, um, print shops that we can work with in Kunming that can do a really fantastic job of, uh, replicating high quality colors on, um, on Pu'er paper. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was really, uh, pleased to kind of be able to, to stretch what we can do. Um, we didn't, uh, two years ago, we didn't get the chance to, I was trying to work with some artists that we had met in, uh, in Kunming and maybe get some of their stuff onto, uh, onto our, our products, but it just didn't, it didn't work out. But it's always been a focus of mine, even if I, if I don't use my uh, own design stuff to, to, to work with the artists I've met, especially in the Seattle area and, uh, and in, in, in Kunming, um, uh, to, to, to put the put their stuff on onto onto cakes of tea. I mean, I, I, I really act, I do I actually look at the tea that we make and the tea that we blend and the product we sell as as, as my art. I mean, like my, my tea my tea is my art, and uh, I put a lot of uh, time and effort and focus into um, um, blending the tea and sourcing only the stuff that that meets the standard. Or even the story that I'm trying to tell with the tea, and um, if I can work with uh, uh, other artists who also are interested in um, similar ideas of, of storytelling, which is kind of like what Space Girls does. Um, once I kind of came up with this blend and the name, this this is how I come up with names for teas. I um, I, I I drink the tea um, until I'm just specifically the tea that I'm trying to name until I'm um, thoroughly thoroughly tea drunk. And then okay, I, good, I, good. I write down every single thing that jumps into my head. Um, it's um, similar to um, was it Hunter S. Thompson said, "Write drunk, edit sober." 
Is he the one who said that? I can't remember. I'm not um, sure. So I, that I, sounds like him. I take a little like bit of that approach uh, to tea, and so I, I let myself get really, really, really tea drunk, and um, and then I, I just write down everything that comes into my head. And um, so Space Girls just jumped into my head, and it was kind of timed in with, uh, like, working with Stasia, where we're going to have her, like, do something custom, or could we do something that already existed? And so if we were doing something that already existed, then it was Space Girls, and then it just kind of like led into there. We've got, you know, some of our teas are planetary teas, and, and um, just this idea that, that these girls were like your, your guide to this massive, you know, like universe of Puer. And, and Puer are so amazing. Like every single mountain you go to is like you're visiting an entirely different planet. Um, even the people that live there, they've got different religion and, and culture, and their own history, and, like they look different and they dress different and the teas taste different. And so um, this, this concept of, of, of storytelling in tea and, and art for me has always kind of gone hand in hand. What's the reaction been? I mean, when did this go on sale? This was earlier in the spring and then so in the summer? It, it actually didn't. We had intended it to go on sale at the Northwest Tea Festival. Um, last year, I don't know, 2016 was just a year of, of, comedic errors in every single step that we did in, in the business it was it was it was almost almost comical and um the kind of like the crown on on this huge uh, uh hilarious suit of armor that was 2016 for us was all of our product intended for the, the northwest tea festival um the boat that had our product just never showed up it was like a month late and oh. So this, this product was specifically designed for the Northwest Tea Festival, um, and we're going to release it and do everything at the same time. But then that didn't come around, and so um, we just kind of made up a, a creative date. Uh, uh, start of first week in December, we kind of released our all of our planetary tea lines and Space Girls. So this is still a relatively new tea. We've only been selling it since uh, early December. Hmm. Cool. As I mean, so have you gotten a lot of feedback on it? Uh, is it is is the whole I guess I, the plant the space planetary aesthetic? Because you, I, I I got this tea because I bought your it was I guess your guide to the universe. You got like all the planets plus a space girl. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's uh, it's it's actually been I think it's been accepted really well. I um I like I think people like the uh, uh the the creative whimsy in it. Um, I'm not like taking myself um, too seriously. Um, I have some of our teas that I consider serious teas, um, but then you know the rest of them, I, I like to ha- I like to have a little fun with it. And um, the planetary teas, I think I think people I think people recognize that, and um, um, they're kind of fun. And it's 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 kind of cool to see. I mean. I mean, look, like like NASA this week just announced that they found new planets, right? You know. Like, yeah, that was wow, so I, exciting. I like I like the time that we live in. That um, there's this this concept that like the the science fiction that we grew up with is 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 coming true, like literally right before our eyes. And um, I kind of like to uh, uh, play around with that a little bit. I can't wait till like Ghost in the Shell seems dated, right? Like I can't wait for like cyberpunk stuff from like the eighties. It already kind of does. I was reading, I was rereading yeah. Neuromancer, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what is this? Is pre-internet internet, so it is very weird to to read about. Uh, and my dad was saying when a, a couple, I think maybe last year, he's like, you know, if you'd have told me as a kid that I had a Star Trek little th- hand thing that I could hold in my hand and talk yeah. and get information on, I have a tricorder, mm-hmm. just like just like Captain Kirk, only it's better. Yeah, <laughs> that was on TV. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, some of that. I mean, like, Neuromancer was so 
prescient. I mean, like the, the, the things that they foretold in that, I mean, basically it was like cell phones is like the only thing he, he didn't predict. The rest of it's all going to be here. I mean, even like the, the trend towards, you know, like um, cybernetic body implants and modifications and things for enhancements. Um, uh, fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, a little, little bit beyond uh, beyond T, but I, I hope that in a in a in a in a in a in a cyberpunk dystopian future, we can still have like really good T. <laughs> I mentioned a uh, Picard Picard head T in the future, Star Trek. T Earl Grey hot. It's it's my head canon that he actually has really terrible T, but it's the twenty fourth century and he has no idea oh, because no. there's an episode. There's an the reason I think this is because. Scotty is like stuck. There's an episode where Scotty from the original series is stuck in a transporter loop for yeah. like a hundred and something years, hundred fifty yeah. years, less than that. And he he's un un unfrozen, I guess, or unlooped. Uh, he's decoded by Jordy, and he's on the the Enterprise, and he's meeting the Next Generation crew, and he goes to Ten Four, and he gets a drink from Guinan, and he spits it out. He's like, "What is this crap?" Mm-hmm. And then Data's like, well, it's synthahol. It synthesizes alcohol, but it's not the real thing. We can't have alcohol on a ship. And Scotty's like, no way. And he has to, like, Picard has, like, a secret bottle of, like, gin for him or something. Yeah. So my suspicion is that, like, the food on the TNG Enterprise is awful, but people have just been intergenerationally used to synthesized food. I hope it's not true in, <laughs> in our future. It's a possibility. It is a possibility. You could, you could, you could see it happening. I mean... I mean, who knows the, the, the tea that we're drinking and what people experienced drinking tea 300 years ago. Maybe we're not tasting what tea tastes like. That's true. It could be. I mean, 300 years ago, they didn't have nearly the variety of tea, though, right? Like, there was no Tiguanian 300 years ago. There was no Shupuer 300 years ago. Chances are what people had was, and, and I'm not a, the best tea historian, but I think 300 years ago, most people just kind of had whatever green tea was closest to them. Or you were part of the big transatlantic trans-indian ocean trans-pacific um uh, portuguese trading routes which got you black tea in the west that i fairly confident was that was not very good quality because the chinese weren't drinking it themselves they're like ah the 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 barbarians can have this stuff (laughs) what are you talking about i've seen i've seen 200 year old show puer on on alibaba you can't tell me it doesn't exist (laughs) oh well if it's on if it's on alibaba then it's got to be real So you're going to China in the near future, and you and you have a you have a you, 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 you said you had a newborn, right? You just had a kid. Yeah, we do. Um, in uh, early November, our uh, our first first little baby. Her name's uh, uh, Gemma. Um, she's got her little uh, her little passport, and we're getting her uh, her visa soon, and we're going to be um, um, taking her back to uh, China with us. Uh, her family's super excited. They haven't they haven't met her yet. Um, just her father did, and so um, we've been working to. Um, keep her as a part of the the business and our lifestyle um in, uh-huh. in china um there's there's a very traditional concept of family every single tea merchant that we work with they have kids and those kids are they're there they're in the market they're with them all the time and there's not this there isn't this like separation like oh the adults are going to be here and the kids are going to be here there's this uh, a really a really welcoming sense of family and so i know that you know we'll be able to just interact and basically do the exact same things that we've done the last couple years but have a have a child with us, and a lot of the tea farmers knew that Lama was pregnant last year, and they're really excited to uh, uh, meet the baby. And so we've already gotten a couple little like uh, tea tea gifts for the baby, so I'm pretty excited about that too. That's really awesome. That's super cool to hear. Um, 
So you don't think it's going to affect your ability to to source or anything like that? If you're just going to bring, because how long do you think you're going to be there? Uh, at least a month. For, for four months. Yeah. Four months. Four yeah. Months. Yeah. It's a it's a long time. Um, I don't think it'll affect it. I mean, it's going to be a little bit more a little bit more complicated, and um, um, but um, I think I think it's going to be fine. Well, what a lucky! I mean, she's a baby now, but what a lucky little girl to be able to spend a huge chunk of her time with with relatives and family and just just good friends on the other side of the world. Yeah. Uh, that uh, under other circumstances she would maybe see once every four years, right? Yeah, and that was that was actually a focus when we when we started this business. I mean, I've I've worked in software for for, for two decades, like, and I'm in Seattle. I could very easily get another computer job here, and it would pay me pay me quite well. Um, but there was this aspect to um, starting this business that would give us uh, an opportunity to spend a, a significant portion of the year with her family that we wouldn't we wouldn't get otherwise. And, and I'm, I'm really happy that, that this business um, gives us the, the chance to do that. Well, that's uh, so. I guess are we going to see any newly designed? Uh, like, are we going to see more Stacia art for the 2017 products, or or is that just that's just not how your method works, and you don't even know what you're going to sell in six months? We haven't we haven't talked about it. Um, I um I do. Well, probably I think I think at least for the Space Girls blend, I'll keep it just with like a 2016. But if I find some new awesome tees that are have some really cool things, and um, I don't know, we'll see. We'll see what 2016 uh, 2016 brings. But I'm kind of happy having these cakes kind of be like a, a very uh, special limited thing that people who got it can enjoy it for what they are. Yeah. Now, Stacia, you have um, you have a new. I guess I'm sure you have new work being finished and shown all the time. But I noticed you had a tarot deck coming out with a Japanese theme. Um, that's coming out in March, right? Hopefully, that's the plan. Yes, um, I've been working on it for about two years, and uh, I just started telling people it would be ready in March to give myself a deadline because otherwise, you know, things I could be I could be perfectionist and fiddle over it for forever. Smart. Um, yeah. <laughs> I put the order in for the printers uh, about a week ago, and it being printed right now. That's exciting. I'm so excited! I can't wait. Um, I am still kind of a beginner learning tarot. Um, and I was having a really hard time uh, coming up with a name that wasn't already taken or similar to something that was already there. So the name of the deck is the Sasuraibito deck, and uh, Sasuraibito is a kind of older Japanese word that means wanderer. Um, mm -hmm. I my dad's eBay handle, that's how I learned it. He's, nice. he's from Japan. <laughs> Okay, because your pronunciation was really good on, you rolled your R just right, I was going to ask you, do you speak yeah. Japanese? You Not really, no. <laughs> I know a few words, like, I can read the hiragana and katakana, but hmm. uh, I, I just know a little bit. But I wanted to have a deck that spoke to, like, my influences, and my dad's Japanese, my mom's from Bellingham, Washington, so... Um, it's kind of like a, a Western style deck with some Japanese and Buddhist concepts thrown in. Um, yeah, I'm super excited about it. Awesome, I'm 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 excited to see it too. I, I have no real like personal interest in tarot specifically, but usually the art on those cards is very, very cool. Uh, and and I've I think somebody I think when I was a teenager my dad gave me like a lord of the rings themed deck and i believe those are the rules right you can't buy one for yourself you have to be given one yeah so this is a um 
I guess, a tradition, but there's a way to break this tradition. You can you can buy one for yourself, but say it's from it's it's your higher self buying it for yourself yeah. now. <laughs> you buy yourself a deck. Um, it's also why often tarot decks are locked up in stores because they're commonly stolen. I just learned. Oh, yeah, because you, you so can't you can buy it, it, but you can steal it. Apparently, huh. so um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of folklore around uh, tarot, which is why I like it. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm quite atheist, and uh, I'm starting to learn uh, that tarot is a really interesting way to do psychology. Like I used to be really anti, you know, like oh, it's mumbo jumbo. It's you know, it's, it's all a bunch of crock. But um, I think there's definitely value to uh, looking at things with a, through a different lens. Mm -hmm. so, no, it's been it's been really fascinating researching and playing with cards, and I'm so excited to get them. Yeah, what you're saying, you know, I, I have I've had a similar arc personally. Like I also don't believe in any gods, and for a couple of years there, I was like, just no way, like with anything remotely um, out there. And I mean, I, I still like I'll go on right, you know, check the boxes. Like I don't believe in ghosts and magic and stuff, but I also think that. Lots of things that are seemingly mumbo jumbo exist in their own universe, their own cultural universe, right? And then in the in the paradigm of that cultural setting and philosophical universe, then these things are actually can be very interesting academically. And that's one thing that I've kind of had to re-understand. Like, okay, you can there's there's not just one context for analyzing information you you can't there's there's no universal decontextualization I, I i guess that's me just kind of rejecting an enlightenment way of thinking about the one way of thinking about things um so that's really cool to, that's really interesting to hear that i'm super excited to see uh to see what that what that turns out to be hopefully you can get it out in march i mean there's what 30 31 days in march now yes Yes, so, but only twenty eight in this month, so it's sooner than. But it's already it's already being printed. Yes, it's yeah. being printed. It's so out it's, of my hands. So it's done. Yeah. Really oh, you're done. Call. Congratulations. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Glenn, um, you know, you, you earlier we were talking about your Instagram account, and uh, I just kind of wanted to ask you uh, about your your approach to social media in general, and, and maybe it's just that you keep popping up in my corner of the T universe, but in my, in my estimation, you are very well known. Do you think you're very well known? Um, I, that's, uh, well, th thank you for saying that. That's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that I, I, I pop up in, in known places. Um, uh, so, I mean, the, the focus of our business is very, 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 very precise and specific. I mean, like I, I, as far as when it comes to tea, I only sell pu'er, so I, I'm automatically in a very, very, very small, tight niche. Um, I, I have expanded into into awesome teaware that I like that can be used with pu'er, but I still I still only source only source uh, pu'er, um, and so I think that just because of that, um, and maybe hopefully because of my uh, passion in, in in sourcing quality, that I I, I bubble up into the top for people who really like to drink pu'er. And pu'er is a big thing right now. And even, you know, like when mm -hmm. I started the company just even just four years ago, um, pu'er wasn't. And so I think it's it's kind of a combination of things, you know, like my, my focus on, on, on exclusively pu'er and also pu'er being just kind of popular. Yeah, I think the the big thing with, uh, um, with pu'er, 
I suspect, and maybe this is maybe this is just me. Maybe this is just bad history on my part, but I think that I noticed a big spike in 2012 for interest in poor because Dr. Oz talked about it in the reference to oh, losing weight. That's right. How much weight? And, have you lost? Uh, oh, I've gained. Poor makes me really like hungry. Like a long session with like a shung poor, I get like this like hungry thing where it's just like I really just have to like I need like a really big burger, and um, so I, I think I actually gain weight with poor. Thank you. You know, I, I I keep reading people say, oh, tea is really good for suppressing your appetite, and I'm like, I. I don't know what you guys are talking about. If I have really good tea, like, I'm going to be more hungry later on. It's like chewing gum. Like, your brain thinks, oh, this is delicious, but there's zero calories. Nothing's really happening. And the rest of your body's like, okay, we're going to eat food now, right? Two hours later, you're starving. <laughs> tea munchies. Uh-huh. Tea munchies. Uh, so um, when so you, you, you print the existing um, patterns for your, uh, your tea cakes um, labels in Kunming. What's the Chinese reaction to, um, to to your design? Not just to your design, but to the idea that like Westerners want to drink pu'er and you can market it to them. Like, I mean, they, are they rolling their eyes while you're print while they're printing out your labels, or are they really into it? Yeah, near, near, nearly the entire time. I, I'm 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 a novelty. Most 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 West most all nearly all Western vendors operating in Kunming are are a novelty. Um, they like, I mean. I can go into tea shops, even tea shops that I've been into before, people I've worked with before, and to them it's just like it's like the most amazing thing. And like they'll, I'll, they'll be brewing tea, and I'll I'll open up the guy one because I want to look at the leaf, and I'm smelling the leaf, and they like make some comments like, "Where did you learn how to smell the leaf?" And I'm like, "What do you, what do you mean?" <laughs> like, and they're like, "They're like, can I take a picture of you smelling the leaf?" I got my my friends. Are, never believe that like there's an american here who knows how to smell tea leaves and it's just like come on you guys it's just it's um it, it gets a little old after a while um as far as like the design goes um oh they think it, they think it's hilarious they they, they think they, they think my designs are ridiculous you know like they'll they'll show me designs that they've seen from other western vendors and they think it's hilarious and um, but it's it's I don't know I I'm not selling to them so I don't really I don't really care entirely what they what they think um, That's the good attitude to have. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I, 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 I sell to the Western customer, and I'm a Western customer, and I know what I want. And for the most part, other Western customers are going to like the same things. Um, and so, if if they if they don't like it, that's that's okay. Um, at the same time, I mean, like, there's there's a bunch of really weird wrappers in China. Like, I was so I'm at the print shop, and I get to see like all of the stuff that's getting made for all the other customers, and. I mean, there was this one guy who printed this cake, and he was very, very, very serious about it. And it had like a like a, a clip art JPEG of a Bugatti Veyron, like like printed on the, the cover of the of his cake of, of tea. And I'm like, oh. and an apple. Of, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like you you guys can't make fun of me. Like if this is the, if this is the cake that you're pressing, right, with an apple logo and a Bugatti Veyron on it, you can't tease me for my designs. Who who is the I guess who's buying? Do you have an idea who's selling or buying Apple logo tea? Is that for the I assume it's for the Chinese market somewhere? Purely for the Chinese market, and it, basically it's you see Apple logos or variations of it on everything, and so I mean people understand what Apple is, but at the same time, having an Apple on things just means that that thing is like 
top shelf. It's high quality. Not, not necessarily tied to Apple computer, but having an Apple on things just means that you can charge more for it because it's, it's special. And so, yeah, you see Apple logos on everything over there now. And I take it Chinese lawmakers just don't don't care <laughs> just Chinese, don't care because I mean Apple sells a, a, Apple I mean Apple sells products in China so I, but I guess they did there's no way of suing anybody uh, over there it's, that's gonna really stop anything it's hard um, um, I mean international law and especially with China because China has this long history of just not really caring about foreign laws and I, I can understand that and they're they're also I mean still basically kind of getting out of the just recently getting out of like the developing third world type mindset with the majority of the people in China and so you kind mm -hmm. of you know, you kind of give a little extra um, wiggle room for you know like developing countries but they're they're past that now and they're they're really getting into the place where they're like people are like people are starting to copy legitimate Chinese designs and so they're getting into the, the, the realm of having to protect their own stuff and so seeing you know like you know like foreign people wanting to protect their rights they're starting to get a little bit better on it but like this it's it's funny like you'll, you'll go to the you know quote-unquote technology areas of, of Kunming that you know like little tech towns and there will be 12 Apple stores in a row right next to each other that actually don't even sell any Apple products but they look identical to the Apple stores they've got the glass they've got the fancy wood they've got the aluminum people are wearing Apple shirts but they don't actually even sell any Apple products it's it's, it's hilarious wow. yeah that's one of the things that it you know I, I have started to learn about you know I have not been there but I started to learn about modern China that it's been a little bit illuminating when like seeing some other Chinese media that comes over here I'm specifically thinking of that movie that's out like just now the Great Wall with uh, um, bunch of Western actors and it has uh, uh, Matt Damon in it, I think. Yeah, yeah. And there was a whole scuffle about, well, you know, what are Westerners doing in a movie about ancient China? Why can't Hollywood make movies with Asian actors? And like ninety nine percent of the time, I'm on board with that criticism. Yeah. But I thought to myself, oh no, it's the reverse of that. If this is a Chinese film studio, just they just want Brad, they just want uh, Matt Damon on their on their movie poster for the domestic Chinese audience as a signal of hey, hey, look, we're serious now. Yeah, exactly. Like they, they they're now to the point where they they can hire um, Hollywood actors and, and actresses, and um, I mean they're actively trying to, to to invest and take ownership of of Hollywood in America. A lot of the a lot of the big money um, uh, the big money people in China. It's fast. Yeah. So, Stacia, um, your uh, website says you like um, science fiction, and uh, I just kind of and there, I did see some science fictiony themes, specifically, obviously, in in the Space Girls, but just in general, uh, when I was sort of browsing your Etsy store and your website. Um, what are I guess? What are your favorite? I guess science fiction, like writers or artists, and like does consumption of science fiction or just genre literature in general like what's the role does that play in how you've developed an R as an artist oh man that's a good question um it's hard because i like so much science fiction um and fantasy um but absolutely all the media that i consume i feel like translates or trickles down into my artwork um i really love douglas adams because he's so absurd um i watch star trek x-files the Expanse is really good, just came out. Um, but I also really like uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, anything Orwellian, so Orwell, uh, Ray, Ray Bradbury. So like the dystopian kind of warning for a future or like 
I don't know. I really like uh, science fiction because it's got this big exploratory uh, tilt to it and uh, helps you imagine people different than you and places different than you and it's all new. And I don't know. I, I like looking at the world through a slightly tilted viewpoint. And uh, I don't know. Space is pretty. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was little, like everyone else my yeah. age. Um, and I don't know. It's a really exciting time for science fiction and science nerds. And yeah. That's all. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, th there has been a lot of really interesting new science fiction stuff in. In, I, I didn't realize this until a couple months ago. And I was just sitting around talking about, oh, I wish there were more good science fiction movies. And then I actually sat down and thought about. It. I was like, actually, we've gotten at least one really solid science fiction movie for like the last seven years. If you're looking for it, because yeah. Arrival came out in 2016. I thought that was the best movie I saw last year. I really loved it. And then going all the way back to like Moon. In two thousand nine. Oh my god, Moon's the best. Right? Moon's my favorite. Have you seen that? Actually, I haven't. I haven't seen Moon. When? I need to see Moon. The soundtrack is phenomenal. It's so, really beautiful. I read. I read a really awesome, uh, really awesome sci-fi book that took me by surprise uh, last year. Um, uh, it was written by a Chinese author. Have you? Did you hear of a, a three three body problem? I haven't read it, but it's on my like my like to read. It's on my was, Amazon wish list. I was really fascinated by um, kind of like an emergence of Chinese sci-fi because I don't think there's a lot of traditional stuff being done in China regards to um, Chinese created sci-fi, and it was really interesting just to kind of see a Chinese perspective on it. Um, it actually, I mean, it starts off during the communist revolution, and it actually kind of touches on some things that um, were, I mean, are very sensitive in, in China. Um, mm -hmm. and, but it was, um, and it was all, all tied into, um, Chinese history and Chinese history mm -hmm. impact on science fiction. And it was, it was just really cool to be able to see an imaginative science fiction future told by a culture that I, I don't know anything about. And it was unlike, um, almost all American science fiction. It's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Huh. I, I've got, now I really want to go, cause I think Ken Liu was the translator of that. Yeah book and he is a genre writer he wrote a, f a fantasy book uh it was it was, there was a based on chinese is a wuxia the, you know sort of subgenre fantasy book i forget what it's called right now the dandelion king I'm looking at the picture of the book in my head but he's also an author and he, he translated that 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 story um that's got to be tough as well um i mean because i don't know uh, just i mean translation is one thing but being able to to translate science fiction i don't know maybe it's not a problem it's probably easier than translating classics would be my guess maybe i'm wrong about that because if you're translating journey to the west or some really older piece of literature it's already hard for us to read as western 21st century westerners to read like shakespeare i find that that's a little like i don't know what it, I'm, I'm reading i need a, i need an adult to help me to help me understand this it must be even harder for classics in chinese because there's a there's a whole other dimension to the jokes and the puns which is the characters that you choose right the radicals and the relationship between the characters pictographical representation and its icon and culture and its sound it's making in the words you're writing and maybe we don't have the best phonetics of like chinese from 1500 years ago yeah so i'd imagine that that gets really tough i've, I've heard it argued that you simply can't translate classical chinese possible and that's a little little bit too much but it was it would be very hard uh do you i, I take it you have pretty good spoken chinese um oh or, or 
Uh, I, I'm really good at yelling at drivers now. <laughs> um, okay. I, I, I know all the T terminology. I mean, largely, I mean, I, I can sit down in a T market and have a, a, a puer conversation with a T vendor. Um, but that's about it. I, I, I actually, re- I rely heavily, heavily on Lamu. She's, um, she's, she's amazing. And I mean, mm-hmm. her growing up in Yunnan, Yunnan, I mean, Yunnan has a lot of local dialects and even I'm like, Yunnan itself has kind of like a local dialect. And, um, there's so many different natural ethnic minorities in Yunnan that uh, a lot of the, the tea people that we deal with, especially the older generation, they don't, they don't even speak that much Mandarin. They, they definitely don't write it. Uh, they, 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 they can't read it. Um, and so um, Lamu growing up there and Lamu being a, a minority herself, she's Tibetan, and her mother actually worked with a, a minority book publishing company that specifically worked to publish for the minorities in Yunnan. Um, Lamu has a really awesome, very close relationship with minorities there, and so she's very adept at, at being able to uh, understand some of the different local dialects and stuff. So even if I spoke fluent Chinese, I may not even be able to, to, to communicate with some of the farmers that we work mm. with. So I rely on her heavily. Huh, that's interesting. I guess that's true, though. I mean, China's such a big place, and it's held together. I think a lot of people don't understand. I, China is is like the United States of America 5,000 years in the future, right? Like, it's a political organization, and has always been a political organization with lots of different people in it that just has a, a dominant linguistic and ethnic group. Yeah. But, you know, it's, you know the, the Chinese spoken in Chengdu is not going to be the same as, as in Yunnan, particularly because they have so many ethnic minorities in that in that province. Yeah. I didn't realize there was a large... T- is there a sizable Tibetan population in Yunnan? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So okay. um, the northwest corner of, of Yunnan is what was traditionally uh, uh, the geographical area of southeastern Tibet. So um, there are a lot of Tibetans that live in Yunnan now, even though they traditionally just lived in what was Tibet. Um, there's probably a larger population in in, Ch- in Chengdu, um, but there's a lot of, a lot of, lot of Tibetans. Um, there's a lot of, lot of Xinjiang, um, and then all of the, as you get down in the south, uh, Zhishuangbana, um, you got a lot of the, the Yi and the, the, the Dai minorities, um, but there's a, there's a sizable number of, of Tibetans in the area. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't, I guess in my mind, like, Yunnan is, is hot and humid and Tibet is higher altitude and cold. So Yunnan, Yunnan if to, to, to put it into perspective for like uh, the American mind, Yunnan is roughly the size of uh, Washington and Oregon combined. Okay. And the entire, basically the entire northwest side of Washington is is the Himalayas. You're actually in the Himalayas. Um, you're you're at you're at the foothills. You're, you're you're getting up into it. There's nothing there's nothing in Yunnan that's maybe higher than like fifteen thousand feet or something like that. But you're right there. I mean, you're right there at the foothills, getting up into deep into the Himalayas and deep into Tibet. It's not until you get south of the um, um, uh, Tropic of Cancer, which would basically be about like the if you cut Oregon in half and then went south from there, that's south of the Tropic of Cancer. That's where it's really hot. That's where it's really humid. That's where, you know, Zishuangbana is and all of the, the hot, high, humid uh, uh, tea mountains and tea growing areas and stuff in there. But um, uh, Yunnan's actually quite quite large and, and fairly diverse. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I have a linguistic question about um, your experience buying tea. Um, sure. When you buy uh, Huangpian, which I'm sure I'm butchering, um, 
do your do your tea vendors? I mean, do do your farmers um buy say Huangpian or do they say uh just big leaf like Daya? Um. So uh. So Daya is Daya is technically um just the large leaf varietal. So that's Camellia sinensis asamica. That's 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 my understanding of it. So, uh, La Huangpian old yellow leaf is the stuff that gets processed processed incorrectly or i mean not necessarily processing correctly but so, something happens to the leaf either it was picked and it was on the tree too long um or it it, it was in the pile early in the morning and it, and it kind of lost all its moisture by the time it was roasted or it was roasted too long and stuff and so so huangpian material is is just stuff that just doesn't look pretty so after the leaf is after the tea is uh, fully processed um they sit around in a pile and pick out all the stuff that doesn't look good and then that gets, uh, the, the farmers basically keep it for themselves. Um, but if you want to, and the farmers have some to sell, um, you can go around and collect it. You, it just, you, you actually don't get that much. So you actually have to collect it from a bunch of, bunch of different areas. Um, I, actually, uh, I actually, I instruct our farmers to, to leave it in. Um, so all of our cakes actually have Huangpian material uh, in it. Um, for for okay. reasons, I, I Huangpian it, it, it gives a little extra depth. Usually it's usually it's the larger leaves, and, and you know uh, Huangpian's nice. I mean it, it gives some body, it gives some depth, it gives some sweetness, and so I'm I'm okay with having that having that in. I'm not as concerned with making like the cake look super pretty because I want something ultimately that tastes tastes good. Um, the other thing is like since everything is sold by weight, if they leave the Huangpian material in. I mean, technically, they make a little bit more money, and then they don't have to spend time. Uh, it takes a lot of time to grade it, and so I just I instruct them just to leave the Huangpian in. Um, but then, then for um, for the other products, um, I don't actually uh, specifically search for Huangpian myself, but I work with people who who do. So anytime, like like for our Iron Forge cakes, um, worked with a guy who had went to all the tea farmers he knew and picked up as much Huangpian as he could and then he processed that into Shopur himself and then that material pressed into bricks is what our uh, our iron fort uh, Huangpian material is. Hmm. It's interesting that it has such a kind of a weirdly poor reputation because I not only do I really like Huangpian like like 100% Huangpian material cakes from multiple vendors uh, but I also whenever I take it to a gathering or share it with a friend or something, it, it's always oh this is so great. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> and I'm like, why isn't there more of this? Like, yeah, why don't more vendors sell it? Because it's I've always had a positive. Maybe it's just a weird selection bias on my part, but I've always had positive experiences with Huangpian material. It may be a little bit of kind of like an, an elitist thing that goes on in the the Chinese tea market. Um, I mean, similar to the way you see people like here only wanting um thousand year old gushu or only wanting you know like first spring picking like lao banjang those are big names and they carry a lot of like fancy weight and if you're at a tea shop in you know like beijing and, and they're like oh we just got in like our you know like single tree lao banjang i mean that tea shop has a lot of credibility whereas if they're like oh i just got some huangpian they're like really you mean like what the farmers drink Oh, okay. There's, it's, it's interesting. There, there's, there's a big focus, you know. I mean, in the West as well as as well as in China on um, names, and if you can mm. sell a big tea with a big name, it even if it doesn't taste good with they, an Apple logo on it. Yeah, with an Apple logo, <laughs> Gotti Veyron. If you've got that Apple Veyron cake, right? It's, it's big stuff. 
And even if it doesn't taste good, they, they won't admit it because they're like, oh, this is amazing. This is really good. Oh, no. And I'm, I'm really focused on, on the cup, like the tea. Like all of the truth in tea is in what you put into your mouth. It's what's in the cup. And if that isn't good, why, why, why waste time with it? That's my perspective. It's, it's so interesting how like cultural milieu like just shapes the way we think about stuff, right? Like I feel like we have all these interesting kind of unconscious, geez, I'm going to have to start putting uh, money in a jar for every episode that I tr- fail to not use the word ideological. But I really think that there is a lot of interesting uh, ideas you know, floating around in any given culture about what does and doesn't have value and why it has value and what, and that informs how consumers and just people inside of society in general, like create their expectations for products. So if you tell somebody with the relevant cultural terminology, this is really good, or this is what's going to be virtuous or whatever, you create a self-fulfilling like feedback loop of you're like, yes, Sure. Everyone knows that single single origin gushu is the best every single time, and it's really their reaction to the idea more than their reaction to the material, the literal material in your in your cup. And that's not that we don't do that in the West. We, every culture does this, but it's very interesting to me to see. It's so easy to see it in other cultures. It's much harder to criti- to have a critical eye to what you've grown up with. That was- uh, but I see it very easily in tea. That was that was my that was my focus like the first the first year we were there like I wanted to source the names the big the big names mm. you know I wanted to go to the famous tea mountains and I wanted to get the old tree stuff and it was it's it's something that you don't really realize until you're actually there and on the ground and in 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 trying tea at at origin that that stuff doesn't doesn't matter and but but it was really hard for me to realize that and like now I could go to I could go to Iwu and I could find five different teas that tasted entirely different. And I could go to Bulong and find five different teas that didn't taste like Bulong. And the, the, the problem I had the first year was a lot of people didn't believe that the teas that I was selling were from where I was selling them as because they didn't taste like mm. what the Western perspective of what Bulong is supposed to taste like or what Iwu is supposed to taste like. And realizing that like that was it I wasn't being taken seriously even though I was literally there and like like bought it direct and it was in my possession the entire time through pressing to selling it to the customer still having people doubt that and then uh, that combined with the fact that like I've had so many different experiences from mountains that are supposed to taste one way and realizing that they don't that I've started to kind of obfuscate the details just a little bit space girls is my blend i i I haven't announced where it came from i haven't announced how old the tea trees are and i I let i let people buy it if they can afford it and twenty dollars is a very reasonable price for 100 grams and if they like it they like it and if they don't they don't and i want people to be able to to experience the tea without that that preconceived uh uh, Mm. bias Mm. so do you think uh, so do you think that in 15 years or, or even in five years that that's going to be still be a, a, a viable thing, right? Like, because people would, if people want to buy based on how it tastes and based essentially, you know, on your reputation as a tea buyer yeah. uh, and you continue and you'll continue to supply high quality tea, no matter what I, I'm, I'm, for, I'm, I'm sure of that. Yeah. But I wonder if our expectations are, I, I suspect that, in the near future, the tea buyer's expectations for transparency might change a little bit because 
I've heard that tea farmers they're gonna you know, they they're starting to have cameras on their phones. They're gonna as China opens up, the entire supply chain is becoming is opening up. And I don't mean this in a way, in a way that's like oh the the the, the dirty vendors are gonna get washed away. It, essentially, I'm just saying that I wonder how long Western consumers are gonna be okay with withholding information and just taste it as you go because you're not the only vendor who does that and i'm not even saying it's wrong but i wonder if in 10 years you can still pull that off and not get criticized so it's it's um well what's what's in 7562 right i mean do do, do you know Mm -hmm. does Munghai release the information that's in that do do i mean like like that's like the coca-cola secret recipe like right what what do they what do they put in it what do they what does shaoguan put into their classic recipes and stuff and so there's a long history of um, and it, it's it's not a, it's not a transparency issue. I think I think that word in in the tea industry is a little bit is a little bit misleading. And I was I was too transparent the first year. And and I and I found that that pe- number one people didn't believe what I was telling them, even though even though I was actually there. Um, and so I I now that I've been there for a few years and seen how how tea companies operate inside of Yunnan. Um, I've found that you can be transparent without ever actually showing the customer anything. And it's it's like it's like being in a dark room and shining a flashlight in the corner and say, look at that corner, I'm completely transparent, but the entire rest of the room is dark. And so everyone's just like, oh my gosh, this tea company is completely transparent. But they're actually not. They're just showing you like one very, very tiny little window. And so I've 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 talked, you know, with my wife a lot about this and I want I want to be a tea company that has honesty and integrity, but not necessarily transparency. And I think that you can be an honest company and you can have integrity, but you can keep some of the some of the some of the details uh, opaque, um, if if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, uh, yeah, the, uh, and the word transparency does get thrown around. I mean, it, it's it's collectively one of our favorite words. Um, some, sometimes it might be a little bit more weaponized in some conversations than in others, right? It's either transparency is either building building somebody up, or it's inadvertently sort of tearing something else down. Um, even though tea as a community is pretty pretty rad, pretty awesome, and everyone's really nice. It, um, the subtle implication of oh, this is transparent, this is transparent is like see all my competitors. Uh, and I, there are tea vendors who do this. Uh, I'll see all my competitors aren't transparent, so only buy from me. Yeah, yeah. And that's like a misuse. That's an abuse of the term transparent. I, I like your dark room analogy a lot too, actually, because you can just show one easily photograph, <laughs> very photogenic section of the tea buying process and say, "See, we're done." Yeah, I've. I mean, every year, every year I learn a little bit more. Um, so I mean, the first year I actually worked really hard to try and give you know like accurate ages of the trees, realizing that that's just completely fruitless. Um, so what I'll do is like for for all of our teas, I'll list, I'll list, I, I'm I'm there with them as they're picked. I'll list the size of the tree, like how big is the trunk, how tall is it, how wide is it, because that's quantifiable. Like I can actually sit there and measure that, and but I won't I won't put an age on it, and so but I'll I'll be able to describe the tree that it was the tree that it was picked from. Um, and, and it also means that I, I try not to actually, I really, I really don't want to even deal with some of like the really big fancy tea mountains, like, like Laobanjang. I, I, 
there's there's no point for me to get anything from La Banjong. I mean, number one, it's like so incredibly overpriced. And even if I were able to like get legitimate, provable Lao Banjong, my customers couldn't afford it. And the people who could afford it wouldn't believe that it was actually from Lao Banjong. So if I can find a tea that has an amazing experience and it's not from Lao Banjong and it's affordable, why what why would I waste my time at something like like Lao Banjong chasing these like, you know, magical unicorns in the tea world? <clears throat> right. So, so now that you've been doing this for a couple of years and you've been tasting tea for a couple of years, but you've also been tasting tea for others, right? So like there's, there's tasting tea for yourself. There's tasting tea as like a reviewer, right? Where you're thinking, okay, what am I re- critically analyzing what I'm tasting and what my experience is? But as a buyer, you're, you're tasting tea and you're also tasting it with the expectation that how are 1,500 other random people going to appreciate this? Right, because you're not just buying. You're not buying for a personal collection. You're buying for a company. What have you learned in teaching yourself or learning how to taste for others and yourself? Like, what's that process been like now that you're a couple years into it? Um, that's a that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think the first the first lesson that I learned that was the hardest is to actually trust trust my taste. Like, if I like something, other people will as well. Um, I, I made some, some early mistakes the first year, like finding a tea, like I like this, but I don't know, are other people gonna like it, and really doubting it, and then and then the next then once I actually realized that other people liked it, going back to buy more and like the price of it had doubled. And it's just like, oh I, uh, I just you know look mm. little opportunities like that. And so so right now like if I find a tea that, that I like and I've got a fairly strict process of, of determining determining quality and if it passes my tests and it's and, and it's and it's a decent price. I'll buy it because I know somebody will like it. Will everybody like it? No, but that's okay because everybody has different tastes. And so, if if somebody doesn't like that tea, they may like another one, another one that we sell. And so, as long as stuff like meets my my level of quality and I enjoy drinking it, um, it it'll work out. So, somebody somebody will want the tea. Hmm. I noticed a lot of your cakes are two hundred. Uh, grams. Yeah. And generally, when I order from China, it's three hundred and fifty something. Yeah. Um, and you're not the only vendor to do that, but is that a decision that you made very consciously to like anticipate maybe a skeptical Western market, or or is that just easier for you? Um, it. So first of all, like the reason Chinese use three hundred fifty-seven grams is 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 purely historical, and most of them most of them don't don't realize it. You know, three hundred fifty-seven. Uh, uh, times seven is what two and a half kilos two and a half kilos times uh 12 there's 12 in a tongue that's like 30 kilos a mule, a mule can carry 60 it can carry 30 on either side that's that's it that's 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 why they do it but now everybody everybody just copies everybody in china it's like well it's 357 grams i've got to make mine 357 grams and that's a really big thing it's a huge chunk of tea for people in america and it's it's just it's just a it's just a conceptual thing they're like I can't see myself drinking that much tea, so I'm not going to buy it, even if even if it's even if it's affordable. Yeah. So the first year we pressed all of our stuff into hundred gram cakes. Um, hundred gram cakes are nice; they're they're cute. They're really they're really simple size. Um, but because of the way it's pressed, you know, like with the bing in the back, the bing hole, um, like a fifth of the tea becomes like super pressed and flat. Nobody likes drinking like the 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 bing hole and bing um hole. yeah it's, it's yeah. <laughs> nobody likes drinking okay. bing hole. i ironically i end up drinking almost all 
bing hole and dust because that's what's left over after we make samples. Mm. Um, 200 grams is a really nice sweet spot I found. You know, it's big enough to that, that it kind of looks cool if it's sitting on a shelf. Um, uh, it, it's, it's not, you don't get too much of it pressed into the bing hole. And um, it still it still hits a nice like uh, uh, price point for the Western consumer, and so we'll probably keep pressing stuff into you know 200 grams or maybe 250 gram bricks or stuff like that. We've been experimenting with some different stuff. I mean, um, Space Girls was a, a, a hundred grams, and because um, I really wanted something that fit that like that size profile, and that actually worked out really well. Hmm. Have you ever thought about um, other shapes? Uh, I know Bing Cha is really popular, uh, probably for a very good reason. But what do you think of like mushroom shapes or, or bricks or um, squares? Yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about it. Um, squares, uh, squares and cakes are really, really awesome because uh, geometrically they pack into a box so well. Um, round things don't really well. And so like we can't put as many, we can't store as much in a round shape that we can in a square shape. So square stuff, square stuff is awesome. Square stuff works, but, um, yeah, I'm still experimenting. I may, I may work with some, um, 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 mold makers to, to do some other stuff. Um, we've also pressed some like in like the, uh, like the candy bar shape. You've seen the chocolate bar shape. Um, we pressed some stuff in that last year, but I mean, that was all for, we sold that all through some wholesale thing and we didn't, uh, it never went to, never went to our market anyways. Um, but I, I like I like shapes like that. Any shape that can make it uh, easier for the uh, the consumer, like like the you know like the the tea balls or a little planetary material, um, super easy. Grab one of those, toss it in a mug. You can have a good session with it. Hmm. So um, you have a uh, you have a uh, uh, an interesting geographic presence because my understanding is that the Pacific Northwest is pretty hot right now for like just tea community activity. Uh, do you have like a very specific, I guess, ground game for festivals or events or just in-person community education as a tea vendor? Uh, what's that? What's that like for you? Um, we're we're really active in the, uh, uh, the the Northwest Tea Festival. I'm actually on the uh, the committee this year, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, Northwest Tea Festival is awesome, and yeah, you're right. Um, the Pacific Northwest, you know, Portland, Seattle. It's it's really hot. I mean, it's the the there's a lot of amazing tea people here, and not only are they passionate about tea, I mean they're they're highly educated. They know a lot about tea. It's not that they just like drinking tea. They know they know a lot, and I think that may be an extension of people evolving through the uh, uh, through the coffee markets, learning to understand um, what quality is in regards to maybe local locally produced wine locally produced coffee locally produced food people kind of pe being more willing to accept that that there is a, a larger world and things that they may not have uh, known before um in the northwest um i think the nerd angle kind of plays into it um there's a lot of uh, uh nerds in seattle and and i'm i'm one of them um nerds love things that have depth anything that has like anything that like you can sit down I mean for example like like most of like the the the, the non Parker Brothers board games things that have complexity are huge in the nerd community and they see tea once they're introduced to it and they see oh this is this is bigger than just like a tea bag mm -hmm. you mean like mm -hmm. you mean like there's different mountains I can taste there's different years there's different ages there's different processing styles and it and it it just tickles this part of the the nerd brain and just makes them um, really connect with that and so um, we actually work with some um, 
there's a, a, a local Seattle uh, um, geek and nerd social club, and we, uh, we brew tea for them. Um, I really try to be as active as I can in Seattle because I think that's a, a, an advantage for us. So we're here eight months out of the year. Um, we had a, we worked with the Art Exchange Seattle a couple months ago. We had a gallery show for our tea tables and tea knives, and I, I brewed uh, I brewed tea when I was there with them. And um, I, I try to be as uh, as as active as uh, as we can be while we're while we're here, because because it's it's awesome. I mean, Seattle's awesome. I love living here. I love having access to the the Northwest, and um, yeah. Is there a community of I guess talking I guess I guess the word I'm going to use the word community kind of loosely here. Is there like this you talk about sort of different sub-communities like nerds or people into uh, locally grown food or whatever. Is there, have you, have, you, have you ever been surprised that a certain audience was like really into tea or didn't, did, did anyone, did any audience exceed your expectations and their willingness or ability to kind of quickly get what you were talking about? Because it is a very foreign, poor is about as foreign a concept in tea as you could get. Yeah. <laughs> the thing, the thing that surprises me uh, every single time is how many of our audience and customer are are young, like under un, under twenty one, uh, teenagers, you know, bringing their mom over for you know a, a tea tasting. Um, maybe I mean, maybe as much as like a, a fifth of our customers are maybe under the age of twenty one. What? Um, that, that Whoa! Blows, yeah, that really? blows my mind. And I get messages and emails all the time, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm in high school. I'm trying to learn about puer," and they're like, and then they're like. And I'm like, oh, that's great. What do you want to know? And then they ask me like the most complex questions and they know so much. That's like amazing. it blows me away. Like, like what amount of, of, of information um, the younger generation has for, mm. for tea and that, that they, they don't have a lot of money, but they've got a lot of time and they got a lot of energy and they've mm. got passion and you know, like they'll buy samples and they'll want to like explore what different mountains taste like. And you know, like. 10, 15 years from now, like, you know, like they, they're graduating from college, they get a job, that passion is still going to be there. And then they're going to be able to, to actively like, you know, like buy tea that they've been, you know, like been saving up for. Uh, it, it's amazing. They also can't legally drink alcohol. Oh, yeah. interesting. Huh. Maybe get a little bit of a, a tea high and replacement yeah. for, uh, for other stuff. That's Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. That's, huh. Teenagers. That is really not something I would have expected you to say. Um, ah, that's te- really cool, though. That's not, like that just makes me uh, the, the for, one thing that just warms my heart to hear that. <laughs> it makes me very optimistic about the future of, of tea um, as a as a social beverage, as a community, and as an industry, and in in, uh, in all the different ways in which tea culturally manifests itself in in the West. Right, like the, there will be people in twenty five years. Obviously, I'll still be around. Will you still be around? But in the West, we don't have a lot of social beverages that are not alcohol, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And we don't, we don't, we actually don't have a lot of social things to do that aren't tied to the the consumption of of alcohol, right? I mean, that's I mean, you, you go to a bar. I mean, that's you know, like you go to a bar, you go to a pub, and it's social, but you're always getting intoxicated. Um, coffee shops, coffee houses are not like they. They were in the traditional days of, you know, like Turkish coffee houses and stuff where, you know, well, it was actually, it was primarily bad, but they would just get around. But it was, it was a very social thing, drinking coffee, talking about politics, the arts, you know, like whatever was going on is a very social thing. Coffee in Seattle is a 
very isolating experience. <laughs> like you've got your laptop, you're sitting in the corner with Wi-Fi and your latte and you go in there for two hours and you never, ever talk to anybody. And the entire place is full of people that you will never talk to. Um, mm-hmm. There's something about tea that, that is social, that feels social. And, you know, when you brew tea for, for people, um, we, we need that. We want that. But we don't even know that we do because we just think, oh, well, like if I'm going to go hang out with friends, we're going to drink. That's just what's done. Um, and once that kind of shifts a little bit, I think I think it's going to be really awesome. So, well, there is like this interest. Oh, I'm sorry, Stacey. Oh, I'm just curious. How many times do you think we've steeped this pot? We we're past we're past twelve now, probably. How many How many are you up oh, to? Oh, at least I bet. Uh, I kind of stopped because I didn't want the on my end to have a whole lot of sounds, but I had like four or five. We've got I've got like a really nice. I could go back and add more water, but that would require getting up and interrupting everything. <laughs> I could have been counting too. Um, yeah, I'm starting to get some really nice, um, like about two steeps ago, some really nice peach notes came out of it. Mm. There's a lot, a lot, Space Girls has a lot of complexity. It's a lot stronger than I thought it was going to be, um, which is great, which is a great surprise. Because um, I, I mean, I guess I don't know the year, but I'm just making the assumption that this is all 2016 material. Yeah, all 2015. 2016 spring material. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's no gushu in it. It's all, it's all simple. I mean, it, it's, it's large arbor tree, um, large arbor varietal, small, small, I mean, well, small arbor tree, shao chao, simple stuff, you know, yeah, 30 to 60 year old trees, um, you know, like nothing fancy, but I, I, I think it was, a, a blended to kind of take advantage of the, um, the, the positives in each of the sources. Hmm. Oh, I know what I was going to say before we had a little bit of a technical difficulty. Um, there was a um, there was a, uh, and a there's an interesting kind of again just to bring it back to like cultural studies. There's this interesting assumption about serving people food uh, in a Western uh, sense is that you have your cup mm-hmm. filled with your coffee oh, and yeah. your plate with your French fries on it, and only when I go to like. Chinese restaurants that are like like for Chinese immigrant populations or Ethiopian restaurants where the assumption is everybody shares food and that's how gong fu tea is done right you, you you brew tea for a group and when I was giving a presentation in my last semester of college at a business class where my project was a tea house I was like completely re- reorient the way you think about tea like this is about tea in groups not in individuals and that actually it, it went over pretty well in the class the professor really liked the idea but, uh, oh, that's that's actually interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from the Asian family style experience because, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, every meal that I have in China is all that. Every just a pile of food in the middle, and everybody just grabs it. Um, that's that's an interesting observation. Yeah. So you've been getting into knives recently, uh, or specifically poor knives. But have you met like I guess uh, welders or? Uh, steelsmiths in the area are you are you making more knives in the, oh, I, in the coming year i do i do all of that myself it's all it's all it's all my it's all my work um i like oh, so I cool working. okay yeah i enjoy working with metal um i mean we go back let's see i mean if we if we go back about 15 years right um monster garage remember those discovery channels american chopper um mm-hmm. whole series of things like I just fell in love with those shows, and I didn't know how to do any of that. But I would watch it, and, I would watch <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute! Like, if these guys know how to do that, like, I, I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I should be able to figure out how to do that. But I, but I didn't. And um, 
I found a local welding college in Seattle and um, I just showed up there and I'm like, I want to learn how to weld. And they're like, are you looking for a job? I'm like, I just want to make stuff. And they're like, all right, well, we've got this class. We kind of call it our mad scientist class. You know, you can pay for like one credit a quarter and you can just sit in the shop and do whatever you want. And I'm like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah. And so that's what I did for like two years. Just every single night after work, I would just go into this shop. And anytime I had a question, I would just ask them and they would show me how to do it. And so I just learned how to do stuff my, myself. And then that's um, the, the recent, like, um, like YouTube, YouTube is just amazing. Like anything you mm-hmm. want to learn how to do, there is somebody teaching you how to do it on YouTube. It's such an, it's an yeah. incredible wealth of knowledge. And like, if you want to get into blacksmithing, you can go to YouTube and you can see, like, here's how to build a forge for 50 bucks. Here's how to like use an anvil. If you don't have an anvil, like, Oh, you want to learn how to make Damascus steel? This is how you make Damascus steel. And so I've been, um, I started a couple years ago, um, um, you know, like once we got the business established and, you know, we were doing okay and we'd made, you know, like a trip or two to China, um, realizing that I, I kind of wanted to express myself artistically and use my, my hobbies in, in the business. And so, um, the first thing I did is I bought some, some scrap, um, some scrap Damascus steel from, uh. Um, so some knife makers who like, had extra bits left over and so that I would work in you know like shaping them in, in, in my forge at home into into little tea knife shapes and making little handles for them and you know like realizing that like I liked using them and then I would bring them to tea shops and other people thought they were good and so then I started I, I, I made an auction I, I, I made one I finished one I made it really nice and put it up for a, a little auction on Instagram and it you know it sold and I was just like well that's that's awesome so so that was my test I knew other people were into that as well and then I started making making tea tables and then um, um, just kind of expanding on it um, artistically making stuff that I would use and I liked and um, other people do as well and you're also making the tables so you did you take another woodworking class on top of that um, no the woodworking stuff has, has come a little bit more uh, more more naturally to me um, I've got enough tools in my garage that I can I can make the stuff and the tables the tables are fairly are, are fairly simple um, I don't like the tables that have you know like the the plastic drain tray underneath um, those they, they just like it always overfills and it pours everywhere and I can never like carry it to the sink in time and I always forget about it and so I, I like the tables that are, are flat but have some depth to it and then they also kind of uh, drain into a in, into a bucket and um, so I've been trying to find local local wood um, kind of again tying in the the, the the Northwest into the products uh, that I make um, and then just making simple simple tables that um, really kind of accentuate the, uh, the, the the qualities in in, in the wood and um, they're they're nice I enjoy I enjoy using them and um, we've been uh, we've been selling a, a few of them as well. Have you I did have one I do have one extra question for you actually. Um, if, three years ago you had a blog post about um, the I guess the, I, the the atmospheric science of storing puer in your neighborhood specifically uh that was three years ago uh how have how is how has it turned out are, have you gone back to pumadors are they a gigantic waste of uh of money or no pumadors pumadors are really awesome um uh, you know especially you know like um the uh the little mini fridge ones um i mean technically like a rubbermaid type basket or something or box could work as well as long as as long as whatever you're storing it in is you know like aroma aroma neutral um, or, or aroma positive, maybe like a, a special types of clay, clay jars and mm. things like that can work really well. Um, so the Pacific Northwest is not 
as humid as I thought. I mean, it's it's humid, but when I wrote that blog post, I didn't really fully understand what relative humidity was and how relative humidity interacted with um, with the storage of tea. So uh, Seattle looks a lot more humid than it actually is. So I mean, right now it's like. 40 degrees outside and it's maybe like 99% relative humidity. It's very wet, but it's only relative to 40 degrees, right? And so if I, I want my, my tea to be hotter, and so the house has to be warmer, and then the, the, the relative humidity drops down to maybe like 20 or something like that. And so that was, um, that was an interesting thing to, to realize. And so I, I basically, I kind of have like a, uh, our tea here is kind of a mixed natural storage. So during the summer months when it's closer to like 70 degrees, 70% 70 relative humidity, when, when the outside temperature is closer to that, I, I keep the window open and um, I basically converted a second bedroom into a massive tea storage room. It's, it's sealed, it's, it's set off from um, um, central air and I monitor and regulate the, the temperature and humidity specifically. But in the summer months, uh, I, I let it be a little bit more open to the environment. Um, I mean, it's possible that even, you know, you know, like pollens or microbes in the air may actually enhance how teas are stored. Maybe there's something more in Hong Kong storage than, you know, like just just the numbers of temperature and humidity. Maybe it's something about the actual environment that makes Hong Kong storage great or Guangzhou storage. Um, and so I've been, yeah, kind of using like a, a, mixed, a mixed storage type solution. And what I'm really trying to do um, is, is since, since I have a vendor focus, I'm not trying to push my ideas on storage um, to the customer. I'm trying to basically keep the tea in a fairly neutral state where the tea is still good, but you know I haven't like pushed you know, like super humid storage or super dry storage because I'll let the customer decide what they want to do with it. I'm just going to keep the, the, the tea in a fairly neutral state. Interesting. Okay, cool. It, it would be it would be cool. Yeah, I guess that's it's an interesting position you're you're holding there with uh, you know, not wanting to push that on the customer because it is one of those topics in tea culture where I feel like I get a different answer for everybody I ask. Uh, I've had people say, "Oh, Western storage, don't even try it." I've also had people say, "No, it's fine. Just doesn't you know you can be in the Arizona and just leave it on the shelf. It'll be okay." Or you can only figure out what you're going to figure out. I've also heard the opposite of that too, where it, your tea is comes to North America to die, and I think that's a little bit much. But that is that that, that is a little bit much. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 kind of it's just interesting. Um, I've I've not quite heard like a consensus community. I, I can't find a community consensus on that quite yet. Uh, other than that, humidity will give you specific characteristics, and quote dry, vaguely defined, gives you a different set of characteristics. Yeah, and I guess in, a lo in ten years we'll know more, right? More people are storing tea in, in North America. We'll find out what these teas taste like. I I, th I think I think a lot of it. I mean, it, it definitely depends on how it is stored in North America. There's there's nothing about North America that just makes your tea die, um, you know. And but you have to like you know if you're if if somebody's like oh I've had this tea stored in you know like quote unquote Seattle storage. But it's just been sitting in a Ziploc bag on their shelf. I'm like, well, okay, that doesn't really, that doesn't really, doesn't really count, right? So, like, I don't even really call my stuff Seattle storage. I'll call it modified Seattle storage because I'm, I'm trying to have it have as much connection to the Seattle environment as possible. But at the same time, I realize that I have to. Um, it just gets too dry here, so I needed to specifically 
control it in a way that that would make it um, uh, suitable for you to be sold. Um, I, in, in in the Chinese market, it's funny because you'll everybody in Kunming will swear that only dry storage is the way to go, and everybody in Guangzhou swears that you know like only humid storage is the way to go. And I mean, largely they've they, they've invested their company into these different types of storage. All their tea is stored that way, so that's what they're going to do. Um, if, if it was my my personal preference, um, stuff's got to have a little bit of a, a humidity in there. I've I've tried some really good examples of old dry stored stuff and even quality stuff dry stored well just uh, it just doesn't have that uh that extra thing that i'm 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 looking for so but but that's me i mean you know mm -hmm. well cool awesome thank you so much guys um uh, i guess we'll wrap up here uh, pretty soon is there anything you guys wanted to bring up to plug to just say before we sort of end the recording station uh, no, thank you. This was super fun, and I'm super tea drunk right now. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty uh, <laughs> <laughs> significantly significantly high right now. Uh, no, this was a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Well, um, thanks so much, guys, uh, for coming on to the podcast. I I have wanted to. I I just wanted to chat with you personally, Glenn, for like a couple months now, and I've just kind of never never reached out beyond like uh, I read a reply or Instagram or two uh, so well, thanks so much for the really awesome discussion um, thanks again for everyone uh, for listening uh, have a good night